الجزيرة بودكاست It's a moment the UK has been waiting for ever since the death of Queen Elizabeth. Her son, King Charles III, is finally about to be crowned. For the first time in history, a global audience will be able to see the crowning of the British monarch live. But his coronation will look a little bit different than his late mother's back in 1953. Coronation Day had indeed caught the imagination of people all over the world. But it was most particularly a day of rejoicing for Her Majesty's subjects. It was a day that the Crown is aiming to make this the most diverse and inclusive event in UK history, led by King Charles. That includes everything from refugee choirs and multi-faith representation to a special coronation diversity stamp collection. And an orchestra that will perform a carnival set including a Calypso take on the national anthem. But some Britons have different feelings about the theme. You're talking about diversity and egalitarianism within the context of an institution which is founded on the principle of bloodline superiority. So will Charles III fulfill his desire to be seen as the people's king? Or will the attempt to shine a light on diversity fall flat? I'm Malika Bilal, and this is The Take. My name is Ash Sarka. I am a contributing editor at Navarra Media and longstanding Republican. And for our non-UK audience, what does that mean to you? A Republican in this context doesn't mean I'm a big fan of Donald Trump. What it means is that I think that the UK should be ruled by an elected head of state, like a president, rather than an unelected monarch whose ancestors came over here from Normandy and said, hey guys, I'm the king now. So Ash, we are just days away from the coronation of Britain's King Charles III, What does it feel like where you are in London ahead of the ceremony? What are you seeing? Are people preparing like they would for a royal wedding? Here's the dirty truth about how the country is preparing for the coronation. If you go out onto the streets and you talk to people, it's business as usual. You don't get that huge sense of excitement where you're seeing the manufactured excitement for the coronation come from, it's a very top-down enterprise. So you go into central London and the local councils have festooned the streets with Union Jacks. You've got hotels making their pitch to tourists by having royal family kitsch outside. And of course, you've got wall-to-wall coverage. The coronation will be watched by the world. Every element orchestrated and executed to ensure not a single step is out of place. 
but that's not actually resulting in a kind of a grassroots authentic happiness or sense of jubilation from people. And what polling actually reflects is that the British public is largely indifferent to this coronation. So it's a tricky time for the royal family. This is as big a set piece as you get for the House of Windsor. And so far, people don't really give a monkeys, as we'd say in the UK. <laughs> So let's talk about the king himself. Charles has been called the people's king, which means he'd be the king of a pretty diverse populace. How important is diversity to him? I think on a personal level, King Charles sincerely sees himself as a modern, contemporary, with the times kind of guy. The nation's wealth and strength can be found beyond the size of its economy or its place in the geopolitical landscape, in the values that it embodies. Mutual respect, diversity, tolerance, fairness, and friendship. He has long advocated within the monarchy for something which is more slimmed down, something which is less attached to the symbolism and the hierarchy and the kind of blue-blooded aristocratic values which had dominated the royal family in previous decades. Mm. But what you have to do is take that with a ginormous pinch of salt because you're talking about diversity founded on the principle that my family has been appointed by God to rule over this collection of nations. And when you've got that principle of bloodline superiority, it makes it very difficult for the royal family to adjust to things like a more diverse population. Mm -hmm. So I think that speaks to the very awkward position that King Charles finds himself in. So the question is, how will all those various threads show up in this coronation? I pulled up the schedule here, and I'm seeing everything from refugee and LGBTQ plus choirs to multi-faith representation during this service. As a British citizen, and dare I say, subject of the crown, perhaps albeit unwittingly, what do you make of all of this? I think this is really interesting because it does, I think, speak to some of those long-held beliefs and values of King Charles. Even when he was simply plain old Prince Charles, he said that he saw the role of the UK monarch as being defender of faith, not defender of the faith, i.e. the Church of England. So that means that he sees himself as being in touch with diverse religious communities, I also think that there is this sense of having to speak to a much more diverse UK than his mother came to the throne to rule over. And of course, you've got the fact that two of the heads of government in the UK, Humza Yusuf and Rishi Sunak, they are, of course, from British Asian backgrounds. So it is, I think, just very obviously, very visually, a much more diverse coronation ceremony. But the thing to bear in mind about this coronation ceremony is that it is like the Olympics of public relations, right? They know that all eyes are on them and they get to tell a story of who they are, which, sure, maybe reflects some of these personally held values, but also hits back at some of the criticisms. 
So when you think about some of the media storms which have engulfed the royal family in recent years. Queen Elizabeth's younger son, Prince Andrew, is settling a sexual assault lawsuit. It was brought against him by one of the victims of Jeffrey Epstein. Prince Harry and his American wife, Meghan Markle, interviewed by Oprah Winfrey. Their criticisms of the royal household, the suggestions of racism within, were not well received by certain British news outlets and individuals. A charity boss who's black and was repeatedly asked where she came from at a Buckingham Palace reception says she felt abused by the encounter. So something like the coronation allows them to reset the narrative or at least attempt to because they go, hey, all eyes are on us. We get to have a refugee choir to show that we're not really racist. Hmm. Hmm. So I want to talk about what happens when that narrative runs up against reality. (laughs) Let's go back to the refugee choir. We just saw this so-called illegal migration bill approved by Parliament's lower house and its legislation that could deport undocumented asylum seekers to a safe third country like Rwanda. That's what the government says. That has prompted a lot of debate about having and highlighting a choir that includes refugees. And there's one member of Parliament who actually brought this up. This is Patrick Grady. If it turns out that any of the refugees taking part in that choir have arrived here on small boats or from a safe third country, should they be deported to Rwanda before or after they sing for the king? Good question. Spicy question. What did you think when you heard that comment? What I think that clip speaks to is the extreme contradiction between government policy and these moments of nationalist spectacle where we congratulate ourselves for who we are as a country. When you see things like a refugee choir, when this is the legislation which is being passed, it would treat asylum seekers on a blanket basis like they're criminals and send them to a country with an awful human rights record. When you've got an NHS choir, when the National Health Service is on its knees, when you've got an LGBT choir, when trans people are being targeted as part of a moral panic... Sure, you might say, oh, well, it's good that the monarchy is standing up for these demographics, these communities, these institutions. But for me, it shows the emptiness of the spectacle, the powerlessness of the spectacle, because on a material basis, these are the groups which are under attack. I want to take it back to the ceremony, because there is one thing that we know that will be noticeably different from... Elizabeth's coronation, and that's the crown jewels. Camilla, Charles's wife, will not be wearing the Kohinoor diamond on Queen Mary's crown, which historians say was stolen from India under British rule. In fact, Britain drained a total of nearly $45 trillion from India over the centuries. So what do we know about why she's not wearing it? This is an Excellent question. And I think it goes back to what I said about this being the public relations Olympics for the royal family. So the Kohinoor diamond is one of the largest and most famous jewels in the world. And the reason why it is set in the crown, which is traditionally worn by the monarch's consort, is because it fell into our hands through really underhand means. It was first set in the throne of the Mughal emperor. It was then gouged out and it passed from hand to hand until it 
came into the possession of the East India Company, which was the private company which ran India as a colony in the 19th century at the end of the first Anglo-Sikh war. It was part of the settlement of the Treaty of Lahore, and it was signed by an 11-year-old Maharaja. It was then given as a gift by the East India Company to Queen Victoria, who had named herself Empress of All India, and it became a real symbol of British conquest over the rest of the world. For many, the jewel is a painful reminder of India's colonial past, and they want it back. Britain has repeatedly rejected India's claims on the Kohinoor. So I'm not surprised that this is a minefield that King Charles would want to avoid. Issues around reparations and colonial legacy are really big news in the UK right now. It's something which is felt very dearly and acutely by Black and Asian Brits in this country. Right. And so if you saw Camilla wandering around with the Kohenor on her head, it would just reignite all of those debates. So for them, it's a win-win. By not having the Kohenor diamond at the coronation, they avoid the big argument and they also get to hold on to the stolen goods. So what more will the coronation expose about the monarchy? That's after the break. Get your news in less than three minutes, three times per day with the Al Jazeera news updates. Just ask your home device to play the news by Al Jazeera or subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm talking with journalist Ash Sacker about Saturday's coronation of King Charles III. And with its focus on diversity, she's focused on who won't be there. So there is one person of colour who will not be a part of the procession, and that is Prince Harry's wife, Meghan Markle, the Duchess of Sussex. And we all know by now why she isn't going to be there. The relationship between Prince Harry and Prince William has irrevocably broken down. It is said that Prince William's intense dislike for Meghan was a part of that. On her part, she alleges that she experienced some real emotional cruelty, a lack of help when she was in psychological distress considering suicide, that she was left unsupported when facing a barrage of racism from the far right and also right-wing newspapers, and that a hitherto unnamed senior royal had been concerned about Archie's skin colour. Her son. Whether or not he'd be dark-skinned. When Meghan was pregnant, she said there were questions about her son's colour. Meghan's mother is black and her father white. So we have in tandem the conversation of he won't be given security, he's not going to be given a title, and also concerns and conversations about how dark his skin might be when he's born. That is the race story when it comes to the royal family. And it doesn't matter how many refugee choirs you have, how many luminaries you have carrying orbs and scepters and jewels for King Charles. The most important person of colour to the royal family ever has been isolated, marginalised and sent into what is effectively an exile because of how she's been treated. And that is a shadow 
which is hanging over both the coronation and how the royal family's diversity credentials are received by the public. So all of this is happening at the same time that the UK is having its worst cost of living crisis in decades. Olive oil up 49%, milk up 40%, eggs, cheddar, bread, all up massively. In fact, food prices have risen to a 45-year high of 19%. This coronation will be held on a much smaller scale than Elizabeth's, but this celebration is still expected to cost taxpayers at least $125 million. Do you think that people see this as being out of touch? despite all the attempts to do just the opposite? I think that the country is very split on whether the monarchy and all of those gilded trappings are in touch with the mood of the country. And this tends to be a very generational split. So you've got a lot of older people that look at the golden coach and the bejeweled crown and the golden throne and go, this makes me feel like I'm part of a great nation. And then you've got quite a lot of younger people who look at all of those things and go, well, this is a symbol of the cancer of inequality that is at the heart of our country. Costs are a concern for Adriana Forbes-Durant, a 17-year-old member of an orchestra performing as part of the celebrations. There are bigger things happening in Britain right now. And I know the coronation costs a lot of money. And obviously we're going through the cost of living crisis and loads of people can't kind of heat their homes or buy enough food. We've got nurses and teachers who are relying on food banks. You've got terrible rates of homelessness. And then you've got this one family claiming to have been chosen by God, enjoying palaces, fine foods, um, wealth, status and power, the likes of which most people can't even imagine. The royal family has made an effort to scale back. For example, the coronation dinner will swap out traditional meat pies for more vegetable-forward dishes. And according to glovemaker Deborah Moore, King Charles will be reusing his grandfather's gloves on coronation day. We've got this wonderful, sustainable, eco-friendly king who's reusing something rather than having a new glove. Even though you're claiming, well, this is a slimmed down coronation, what people will be seeing is a gilded coach rolling through the streets of London at a time where people are struggling to pay for their heating bills. What do you think the monarchy represents? In one sentence, for me, the monarchy is a prison. It is a prison for us as a country, and it is a prison for them as individuals. For us, as a nation, it traps us in a system of entrenched inequality. Because right at the top of our constitution is a family who deem their bloodline to be superior to everybody else's. And it's also a prison for them. I think when you look at the royal family as individuals, they are not happy people. They are not a family that seems full of love and joy and warmth and affection for one another. They're a family which is dominated by broken relationships with each other, broken marriages, and 
abuses of power that I think stem from having been raised in the knowledge that you are immune from the kinds of accountability that the rest of us are bound by. That is not a side of the monarchy that you are going to see during the coronation. It's going to be flag-waving and happiness and pride. But when the confetti is swept from the streets and they've got to go back to business as usual, we're going to go right back to that trickle of negative stories where one prince is briefing against the other, someone is lifting the lid on what's truly said behind closed doors, and we'll see them for what they are, which is some deeply damaged individuals trapped in a gilded cage. So finally, Ash, what do you plan to be doing on Saturday, the day of the coronation? And is there anything that you're looking forward to? I love a bank holiday as much as anyone else. Give me a three-day weekend and (laughs) I will spend it hanging out with my friends, misbehaving, doing unspeakable things in a pub. And that is, I think, a quintessentially English tradition that I'm happy to participate in. (laughs) And that's The Take. We'll be back on Friday. This episode was produced by Sonia Bagat and Nagin Oliai with Khaled Sultan, Miranda Lynn, Chloe K. Lee, Ashish Malhotra, Amy Walters, and me, Malika Bilal. Alex Roldan is our sound designer. Adam Abugad and Munira Al-Dosari are our engagement producers. Alexandra Locke is The Take's executive producer, and Ney Alvarez is Al Jazeera's head of audio.